0: All right, grab your Bibles, get them out. Today we're beginning a a new series on the Beatitudes. I've never preached a series on the Beatitudes before. Um, What are the Beatitudes? Um, Matthew chapter 5, first of all, you can just turn there. Um, The Beatitudes are the first part of a larger sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is the longest recorded sermon we have of Jesus in the Bible. The longest recorded sermon of Jesus in the Bible, um, consecutive. And um, interestingly enough, you, could, you can read through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, most people can read through it in about 15 minutes. And, uh, um, but the, the Sermon on the Mount came with some revolutionary ideas. Um, Jesus, Jesus, uh, to, to his audience of the day, Jesus, Jesus would say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus was introducing introducing some revolutionary ideas. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that, um, people were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not like one of the teachers that they were familiar with. And so you can read through it in about 15 minutes. Um, it's not incredibly long, but it is the longest sermon we have recorded of Jesus By the way, this sparked a a question I had in my mind, which was this. What is the longest sermon ever preached? And I looked it up, and this is the longest sermon ever preached. 53 hours and 18 minutes. Now, you're like, how does that happen? This is how it happened. There was actually um, a guy who was trying to have the longest speech in history, and um, he went for the world record. And so he had over 200 pages of notes and preached through the entire Bible. And... uh, it took over two days, 53 hours, 18 minutes, so aren't you glad I don't preach that long? We're, we're aiming for, yeah, I've hey got a strong amen up there. I don't even want to hear myself. Sometimes, sometimes I get done on Sundays, like I don't want to hear my own voice anymore. I'm sick of me. So I can't imagine. All right, whatever. Um, can't imagine, 53 hours. All right. The introduction to the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes, and just like any good sermon, the introduction gives an overview of the rest of the points that will be expounded upon in that sermon. Um, it is uh, widely accepted that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon of all time, because how many know our Lord and Savior Jesus preached it? It's the most, uh, the, the most concise, longest um, sermon that we have of the Lord Jesus, but the Beatitudes, the first part of it, the introduction, they are a sermon within a sermon. And each attribute that Jesus names there are really sermons within a sermon. Okay? How many know that the Bible could not be infinitely long, so God had to make it infinitely deep. And I love that you can never get to the to the bottom of the depths of the riches of the word of God. And this is this is listen, this is a meal. Man, get in this. This is a meal for you. This will satisfy your heart. You need to get into the word of God. It is, there are depths with it. And I've I've read through the Bible several times, but I love it when I've read something maybe five, six, seven, ten times, and all of a sudden, boom, the Holy Spirit just ignites something and you get a new revelation, or or he has something come alive in your heart that you didn't even know was there. And he will do that from time to time. Um... Okay, but what I want you to realize is... And this is, by the way, an introductory message to the Beatitudes. We're not going to get into um, the, the depths of the Beatitudes. It's more of just an introductory message. Um, but what I want you to realize is we're getting into the Beatitudes today. These are the words of Jesus, not only to the people who, who walked the earth at the time of Jesus, who heard him in person give this sermon. What a privilege that would have been. But these, these words are a gift to you and to me. He intended these words to be meant for all the followers of him that would exist beyond that. So they are for us. Okay, so we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 5, verses, uh, we'll do 1 and 2, and then I want to make some commentary on that. It says this, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. I want to pause and just interject some interesting parallels here. Um, I want to draw the parallel between this event, Sermon on the Mount, and the time that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Both of these were given on a mount. Both of these were given on on the side of a mountain. And both of them were introducing a new covenant. Jesus was coming to introduce the new covenant, and that was, of course, expounded upon throughout throughout the Gospels. But he was beginning to introduce the new covenant. One of them introduced the ministry through works. That is the law. This one that Jesus introduced was the ministry by grace empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's important when you read the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes to understand that this Christian life that you and I are called to walk is actually impossible without the Holy Spirit. (laughs) God calls us to impossible situations. You know, You know that your mind is being renewed when you believe the impossible is possible. We pray for impossible situations all the time, and we have the audacity to believe that God will answer those prayers. Okay, if if that's you, if you're praying for impossible situations, stepping out and taking those risks and just relying on God, that is a good indication that your mind is being renewed. Okay, but understand that what Jesus is preaching here. You really can't do this on your own. You have to do it with the partnership of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is introducing the ministry by grace through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It says this in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 8. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory transitory, uh, transitory, though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Okay, he's contrasting two covenants. And it says in the book of Hebrews, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You've, You've come to another mountain. Amen. So he's contrasting these two covenants. And we have this contrast between Mount Sinai and the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus was introducing this new covenant. Um, go ahead and put up that first picture. This is um, what is believed, uh, they don't know for sure, what is believed to be Mount Sinai, the summit the sum of Mount Sinai, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And I just find this picture to, you know, picture speaks a thousand words, that it's rugged. Um, and God, in this case, if you read through those stories, they were terrified. They were terrified of the glory and the the presence of God. And it was almost seen as like this unapproachable um, God. It's rugged. He's holy. Can we come near? Uh, Now now show the second picture. This is where Jesus, approximate location, where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, the, the northern shores of Galilee. And the picture here, I believe, is this picture of life walking in the Holy Spirit, Life empowered with the Holy Spirit, walk, um, Him walking with us. This is grace empowered by the Holy Spirit. I'll have more to say on this when we get, um, we get to, um, deeper into this series, but um, when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount. But let's pick up in verse five, but just realize these words that Jesus is speaking to us, you're not meant to just grit your teeth and try hard and do them on your own. You're meant to partner with the Holy Spirit, walk with Him and, and be empowered by grace. Okay, so let's pick it up. He He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said this Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Rejoice and be glad whenever you're persecuted. However, how many of you like, have that sense where like, you're being persecuted and you're like, I'm going to just rejoice right now? Jesus said, rejoice and be glad. The word glad there in the King James, in the uh, New King James Version, says to be exceedingly glad. And the Greek word for that literally means to leap for joy. Can you imagine that when you're being persecuted? You're like, yeah, I'm being persecuted. <laughs> Yippee. But that's how Jesus says we should live in such a way. When we're being persecuted for His name's sake, we should—the mindset we should have—is leap for joy because great is our reward in heaven. So we'll be getting into all that. Have you ever leaped for joy because you're so excited about something? Yeah. I don't know what it is, but leap for joy. Okay. So <laughs> he says, um, "Blessed are" nine times in in the Beatitudes. The word blessed um, literally means uh, happy. Happy are you when? Happy are you when? And so you could say it like this. This is a roadmap for you and for me, for Christ followers to find true happiness. The Beatitudes are a roadmap to find true happiness. How many want to be happy? I do. It's okay. You don't have to have some religious thing that says it's not okay to be happy. It is okay to be happy. You just need to know where your happy comes from. How many know that only God can give true happiness? Only God can give true happiness. The world has this version of how to be happy. You know this because you feel this contrast in your your flesh. You understand there's a way that you think you want to be happy, but in your spirit you understand that there's another way to be happy, and that's true happiness. But the world has this idea of what it means to be happy. It consists of something like this. I'll be happy when, and it's always when, it's never here. I'll be happy when I get a raise. I'll be happy when I get that house, when I get that car. I'll be happy when I get that new boss. I'll be happy if if I had that spouse instead of mine, I'd be happy, right? You don't have to say amen because I'm reading your minds, okay? But there tends to be a mindset in our flesh that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Amen? I want to warn you that if you believe that you'll be happy, happy once, dot, 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 you fill in the blank, you might be looking for a happy that is unattainable and always over the cognitive horizon. Why? Because whenever you get the new whatever, there's one thing that is still with You. You. There's one thing that's still with you when you get the new thing, and that's, that, new th- that thing is you, okay? Happiness does not come from external circumstances. It comes from an internal attitude that only God can give. This is where happy comes from. Now, um, of course, I could give you many examples of people who have, who have what we would think, oh man, they have it all, they have everything, and are very unhappy. We, we could go through lists of celebrities or people that are like, man, it looks like they just have everything, but yet they're unhappy, they're committing suicide, their marriages are falling apart. We could go, we could go um, and give many of those examples. But the best illustration I can think of is, is one in the Bible, and that is King Solomon. King Solomon really had everything you could ever want. Let's start. I have five examples. Let's start with money. Did Solomon have money? Boy, did he have some money. Solomon didn't have silverware in his house. He had goldware. He didn't even have silverware. He had goldware. All his cups, plates, everything, utensils were made of pure gold. The Bible says that the king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone. Have you ever been to Jerusalem? Are there a lot of stones there? There's quite a few stones in Jerusalem. I I think it's a metaphor, but you get the point. Okay, so how wealthy was he? Right now, the wealthiest person in the world is a man named Bernard Arnault. He's a Frenchman. He's worth uh, $223.2 billion. Last year, he passed Elon Musk at the end of last year as the world's richest person. Before that, it was Jeff Bezos. Before that, it was Bill Gates. Um, but two, uh, $223.2 billion. And all I'm asking for is the 0.2. I just want the point too. Cause then we could we could buy our own building and then, and then I'll be happy. And then I'll be happy. And then I'll be happy. I know it. I just know it. You know what? We are, by the way, we wanna this we rent this facility from another church. It's been a great relationship, but of course we want our own building someday. I was thinking about this and I I really do want my own building, and we're saving for that. But I'm thinking, you know what? You know what I don't want to happen? I don't want to get into a new building someday and think back, oh, remember the adventure? Those were the good old days. I don't want to do that. You know what? These are the good old days. And when we get there, those will be the good old days too, man. Okay. So don't put your happy just always over the cognitive horizon. Once I get that, once this will happen, then I'll be satisfied. King Solomon was not just one of the wealthiest people of his day. He was the richest person in the world at the time. The Bible says this. And he is one of the richest people who has ever lived in the history of the world. He's probably on the top five list for richest people ever in the world. In today's terms, it's estimated that he was worth $2.2 trillion. This puts... Musk, Bezos, Buffett, Gates, Putin, all those people who have a lot of money, this, this is, they don't have anything compared to this guy. They have in the neighborhood of billions. Solomon had in the neighborhood of trillions. It's estimated 2.2 trillion. So was he rich? Yes. Check mark. Okay. <laughs> how about, how about um, was, he, was he dumber than the box of rocks or was he a pretty smart guy? He was pretty intelligent. Okay. So how about intelligence? It is well known that Solomon was one of the wisest people to have ever lived. Probably um, the wisest, um, second only to Jesus, as far as I can tell. Um, 1 Kings 4.29 says this, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. I could use some of that. <laughs> Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. From all the nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. So was he intelligent? Was he wise? Yes, check. Okay, that's two. Number three. How about good looks? A lot of people think, man, good looks, that'll make me happy, right? How about good looks? Was Solomon good looking? Well, the Bible says that his daddy, King David, was handsome. In 1 Samuel 17, 42. The Bible says that his mama, Bathsheba, was beautiful. Now, this interesting thing interesting thing happens when your mama and your daddy are good looking. Oftentimes that means that the child is going to be good looking. And it so happens that the Bible says that yes, King Solomon was also handsome. Now it says that in Song of Solomon one sixteen, and Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon, so he said that of himself. <laughs> That'd be like me writing a book and I'm like, I'm so handsome. It's like just to let other, someone else say that about you. But I think he was. His, 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 the Bible says his, his dad was attractive. The Bible says his mom was attractive. So. I believe he was a handsome man. Um, what else did he have to be envied? How about this? Was he a ladies' man? He had a few ladies. The Bible says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. What about if you have 700 wives and 300 concubines? It says this in 1 Kings 11.3. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, Basically, this man had access to a 1,000 women, okay? Okay, so abundance of beautiful women. I would hate to live in that time in Jerusalem or in, in Israel when Solomon was king. Well, it was a time of peace, so that was good. But I'm sure he just took all the beautiful women. It's like, if there's no beautiful women. He just took them all. So. You just get all Solomon's leftovers, basically. Huh. You don't need a thousand women. What are you doing with a thousand women? All right. I don't know how wise you are. One's enough for me, right? Come on. All right. How about, so check abundance of women. How about peace and security? That was the other thing. He didn't just fight wars like his father, David. He enjoyed a time of peace and security. First Kings five forces. The Lord, my God, has given me, this is Solomon, the Lord, my God, has given me peace on every side. I have no enemies and all is well. This is not the case of Israel of today. There are enemies all around and all is not well. There's there's enemies within, there's enemies without. Can you imagine this? I can't even say all is well in my life. There's a lot of things I got going on. He says, God has given me peace on every side all as well. So, peace and security, check. So, is this a recipe for a man to be happy? He has tons of wealth, very intelligent, good-looking, all the most beautiful women, peace and security on top of all this. Let's not forget he's king and it's good to be the king. Amen. <clears throat> Many servants. Did all this make him happy? Was his joy overflowing? I want to read you a section. I'm so glad it's in the Bible and Ecclesiastes. I want to read some big chunks of Ecclesiastes. He says, this is Solomon, he's a writer. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much, wis- much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to understanding the understanding of wisdom and also, and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. With much wisdom comes much sorrow. With much knowledge, the more grief. So did wisdom and knowledge make him, make him happy? No, uh, let's jump over to chapter two, verse uh, chapter two, verse one. I said to myself, "Come now, I will test you with pleasure." So these other things weren't weren't making me happy. So I'm going to test myself with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself up with wine, and embracing fully. My uh, fully, my mind guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what good what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks uh, than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and providences. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The delight of a man's heart. That's the uh, thousand women I was talking about. I became, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. All of this did not satisfy the deep desires of Solomon's hearts. And this is what many of us oftentimes chase after In the world. If happiness could have been found in earthly pleasures and earthly achievements, King Solomon would have surely found it. Here's the deal if you're pursuing money, fame, sex, good looks, even degrees and wisdom and understanding, thinking that will satisfy the desires of your hearts, you're barking up the wrong tree you've tried it, and it hasn't worked. Perhaps for a moment you felt satisfied, but you know that that didn't bring lasting satisfaction into your life. Here's what I believe. I believe we were made to enjoy life and find happiness. I believe that we were made for pleasure, that the part of what we were created for is for pleasure. I believe that we were made to be fascinated and to achieve great things. You cannot and should not repent for these things. You actually cannot and should not repent for the desire for greatness. God created you for greatness. However, where will we find these things that bring true satisfaction to our hearts? Solomon tried chasing after everything. And as far as I can tell, he had more than anyone in the history of the world. Where do we find these things? Here comes along Jesus Many decades later, many centuries later, I should say. And Jesus wants us to find true happiness. It says this, I'm going to read this again Matthew 5, 3 through 11. This is the good news translation. Instead of using the word blessed, it translates it as happy. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are humble. Happy are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. Happy are those who are merciful to others. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are those who work for peace. Happy are those who are persecuted because of the, what they do. Uh, they do what God requires. We're going to dive into those scriptures over the next few weeks. Um, and and there's there's eight attributes that Jesus lists here to be blessed. Blessed are happy are. And we're gonna, gonna we're gonna dive into each of those. Each of those are a sermon within a sermon. And so. To conclude, I want to just bring this to a close. I will say this. True happiness comes from a happy God. If you ever think about God, what is his, what is his, God has emotions. You, the fact that you have emotions means you're made in God's likeness and image. God is a happy God. A lot, of th- a lot of people think of him as a curmudgeon, as Emily had said earlier in the service, like just one of those Greek God that's withdrawn, and uninterested, and always angry, and always ready to strike you. God is a happy God, and he, but here's the deal. He's happy within himself. He's happy within himself. And in fact, this word, the same word blessed, is used throughout the, the Bible to describe God. And so I'll give you one example. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.11 says this, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That's the same word that was just translated happy. So you could say, according to the gospel of the happy God. Same Greek word. We serve a happy God. The Bible says that Jesus was anointed with the oil of joy above all of his companions. In other words, Jesus is the most joy-filled person ever. He's the happiest person ever. How many want some of that happy? Amen. So I'm going to pray. And why don't you guys stand to your feet. And we'll close the service here in a minute. Man, what a good day. What a good day in church. Father, we love you. We thank you that you did provide for us a roadmap for true happiness, Lord. We could chase after all those other things that we think will make us happy. Once I get this, once I get that, once I get rid of this, once I get rid of that, then I'll be happy. Lord, I thank you that we can achieve and find happiness in our hearts today. It's it's in a relationship and fellowship with you, Lord. Jesus, you said, those of us who put your your words into practice are like those who built their house on a firm foundation. I pray, Lord, we would be those who take your words, put them into practice, Lord, and we will build something that lasts, something that remains on a secure foundation, Lord. I thank you, Lord. You've called us to have joy. You have called us to be happy, Lord. But I thank you, God, that that path forward is counterintuitive to what our flesh thinks will make us happy, Lord. I ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal to us how to walk with you and that true happiness comes from you. Lord, I bless your people today. We thank you for everything you are doing and will continue to do. We love you in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said amen. Amen. All right. God bless you guys.